0: This week on Cool Story, Brie is away travelling the country, but we have a great treat this week. The author and journalist Gina Rushton is joining us to go through the books that got her out of her reading rut and what it's like to be published internationally. Gina is the author of The Most Important Job in the World. That was the title of it when it was published in Australia, and it has now been published in the UK and America under The Parenthood Dilemma because they all need something more literal on the cover of their books. Gina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Now, we'll get to the book in a second. The book is a book exploring the very personal question of whether you should have a baby. Mm -hmm. But you applied your notorious journalistic rigor and turned into a wide-ranging meditation on why anybody becomes a parent, especially in this day and age. But I want to go back to when you were writing this Mm -hmm. a few years ago and then also when it was first published in Australia. Around that time, you forgot how to read. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, (laughs) I really did. I watched so many seasons of Love Island. And
0: how long did you stop reading books for?
1: Well, I was reading a lot for the book as in reading a lot of nonfiction that I thought would be helpful and, you know, to inspire me and also to quote from. But, yeah, I basically didn't read – like I went from reading like, you know, 50 books a year to – I honestly don't know how many I read in that year I read the book, but less than 20. And then I didn't really get into reading until the last sort of 18 months when I wrote, when I like started reading fiction again.
0: Yeah, because I started hanging out with you. We've known each other in journalistic circles for quite a few years, but we only really started hanging out very regularly, almost – two years ago. Mm. And I remember at the time you saying, I don't read. People keep asking me what books I've read lately and I don't read, but you got out of the reading rut. And so the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I knew our listeners would be so interested, is what were the books that got you out of this reading rut? So I think the thing that I've learned about myself is
1: that when I'm trying to get out of a reading rut, I can't read things that I'm supposed to, like the cool new book or the nonfiction thing that you're supposed to read and care about. The thing that I've realized actually gets me out of reading ruts is reading horny books. Um, I don't mean like genre romance or anything, but just books that are at their core propelled by sex in some way. Like I think that we all have that tendency where we keep like literal page turners. So the books that I've been able to read really quickly and recommend and wanted to talk about all are kind of have a level of sexual tension. And they are. There's three that I th- thought were probably relevant. One is, I'm sure listeners have read, a lot of listeners have read this book, is Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. Have you read it?
0: I loved that book. That Same. was a book that I read, I think, in two nights.
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's like a particularly like horny book, though the protagonist has, it's a, it's a about a middle-aged professor who kind of develops an infat- infatuation with a younger academic and her own husband's been accused of sexual misconduct on campus basically it I mean it ultimately takes some dark turns and I think ends up being almost sort of gothic the way that it it, like I don't want to spoil anything but where it goes but I think it does have that kind of sexual tension and I also never read I've really not read many books by wim, middle-aged women who you get a sense of their interior life and their own sexual like their own sense of their own eroticism and their own
0: sexual wants or desires like I don't know if you've read many books like that but I haven't I thought this was an extremely mm. unique book and I, what I loved in it is how she also wrote about food yes. as well as her yeah. sexual desire yes, and how what she was feeling when she was becoming infatuated with this younger academic and when she was feeling shame, when she was feeling sexy, when mm. she was feeling like luxurious, how much that was all tied up in what she would eat yes. at the time and yes. so um, all the shame tied up in how – she treated food and how she would try to restrict herself mm-hmm. and then how when she was enjoying or thinking that she was enjoying some banter with him or some frisson with him, then she would make these incredible meals. Mm, like yes, de- Like yes. spend hours and make something like quite delectable and like full of butter and oil. And, yeah. and yes, when she was feeling luxurious and, and wanted and like she was desiring, that played out in the – Meals she ate, and also how she ate herself, and mm-hmm. it's and I've never seen that done in a no, book before, it and how well, so well it was, well that was wrapped off, wrapped up together. I also loved how bonkers it went in the third act. It was you crazy. Could not it.
1: I was I literally gasped, and also I think the thing I liked about it was it was a really interesting commentary on feminism. Like I I, I found myself because she you know, she has really interest, uh, the thoughts she has about her own husband's indiscretions and misconduct are so different from what younger feminists would, how they would approach that or how they would respond to it. And I think there was this kind of almost debate in the book between the outraged students on campus and her own feelings about what her own husband had or hadn't done. And I really, I found it quite challenging in my own head. It really placed for me, I, I was like interested in the things that I was responding to in her that I agreed with, not the, not the lack of con- condemnation for sexual assault, but some of the things she said, I was like, Oh, I kind of agree with that too. Like, does that make me
0: an old school? Oh, absolutely. Second wave and, feminist? and how refreshing to read a book mm. that you felt at times was tricking you into thinking a way that you wouldn't usually think like I yeah. joked that, um, cause my other friend had just read it. And as soon as I finished it, I messaged her the next day. And I said, I dead set lay there for 10 minutes after finishing the book being like, um, maybe it wasn't so bad that he slept with his students. <laughs> like, you know, for well, 10 minutes she, yeah, you're fully it's convinced crazy Like you, cause you're in her own, you're in her
1: mind for so long, so long that you, and she just has no, she basically thinks that all young women see every sexual encounter as trauma and she believes that they don't have like a holistic view of this or, or that they deny their own empowerment or agency and things. Totally. And some of it was quite
0: garner esque actually first Totally,
1: totally. But in this way where you you don't, agree like a lot of it I found quite confronting and I was like oh god that's a horrible thing to say but then other times I thought well she's making quite a good point there and you think what am I actually condoning when I'm thinking that so yeah it was it was challenging but mostly it was just like I could not put it down so yeah that's the first one
0: and what was your second
1: the other two are more explicitly horny one is called Mrs S by a British author called Kay Patrick and it's set in an English boarding school and the, the author, they're actually British but the protagonist is Australian and this like a stra- <laughs> this Australian person basically comes to a British all-girls boarding school and falls in love with the head- mistress, headmaster's wife and it the tension is just amazing and also the writer is a poet so the, the prose is like really beautiful. So it's just like a queer yearning
0: novel. There was a period about six weeks ago where every woman I knew in Sydney was reading this book.
1: Yes. And I, in our group chat, as you know, some of us who were reading it were very frustrated because there's so much in the book before anything fucking happens <laughs> sexually. Um, but it keeps you reading. So it's a perfect book to break
0: a reading drought. And I saw, I am planning to read it this summer. It's going to be one of my fun reads. But I saw it very prominently displayed at my local library. Really? And I was looking at the librarians trying to guess which one. Had loved it, it and decided to display it because it's quite a funny library to display such a horny book in. Like it's a very, it's a library that's very um kind of suburban and full of little kids mm. and, and a lot of like older men coming in to read the newspaper. <laughs> well. <laughs> and what
1: was your third one? My third one is called Big Swiss by Jen Began. And it's the the premise of it is like delicious. It's a transcriptionist for a psychologist. So a lot of the text is kind of like a just dialogue, who basically becomes infatuated with one of her boss's clients and orchestrates this sort of meet-cute at the dog park to meet them and pursue them.
0: Oh, my God, I love how psycho this is already. It's so,
1: like, Brady. the characters are the biggest kooks. You would love it. And, it, like, sort of pursues this with this woman while knowing all of this woman's like trauma it's really interesting I think the cut called it the anti trauma trauma plot or something like that which I think is it's it deals with trauma in a really interesting way but it's funny like it's laugh out loud funny the characters are so quirky and like not like anyone I've ever read on the page I think it's being made into a tv series and the main woman's being played by Jodie Comer
0: oh wow yeah
1: which is really good casting so yeah it's it's a great one to read if you want to eventually watch the
0: tv series as well it's probably not a book I would pick up from the anti-trauma, trauma plot yeah. description, but now that you've described it as huge crooks.
1: Yeah. I'm no, 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 no. I
0: think you'll find it really funny. And also something funny. Do you think that it's a little bit rarer or it's fallen out of fashion in the past few years to write genuinely funny books? Like actually yeah. funny, not just like ironically, ha ha. Yeah, for funny. sure. Yeah. That's why it's so refreshing when to read read them these days. Yeah. Now back to your book, which it's pretty funny the way that your release has happened because when did it come out in Australia? Last year? The no. beginning of last year. 2022? 2022, yeah. So it came out at the beginning of 2022. So when a book, so in the lead up to that, you have getting ready for publicity, placing pieces, pitching pieces, finding out where you're going to be interviewed, doing your book launch, and then kind of like all that is over within three months mm-hmm. and all that excitement and then it settles down. And you're seen in bookshops, you know, taking photos, all your friends tagging you. Very fun. You just got that all over again, yeah. though, like 18 months later Yes, with New York and London, the UK. Yeah. How yeah. did that feel?
1: It was great. I think also because when it came out in Australia, I don't know, I felt like a little bit disconnected from it and not that proud of it. So I actually wasn't that engaged with the publicity side of it. And I didn't want to do that much. And this time I was like, well, I'm in two different countries and I don't know anyone. Like I'm really excited about this. I'm excited to do events. I'm excited to write for different publications, but it was fun. And it was really, cause the thing about this book is, you know, people want to talk to you about it and tell you about their own indecision and ambivalence and anxiety around these decisions. And I just found it really fun talking to Americans about it and talking to people in London
0: about it and hearing like what their concerns were and what they were feeling about it. So what were the big differences in audience. What do you think is the main question, or what? What's the main thing that gets brought up to you in Australia v UK v America?
1: So I think an interesting thing, and I I think it's partly just of the like the age. Reproductive age that millennials were at when that black summer happened. I think that climate change is like way more on our mind than I found it was for other readers abroad. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think they have the anxiety, but maybe in a little bit more of an abstract way, just because they're not, like, as you know, like I was reporting on, I was a reproductive rights reporter while those bushfires were going on, and I was interviewing people who were pregnant or giving birth about how anxious they were during that process. And that I don't think the women I was speaking to overseas maybe had friends that had gone through that or or any similar circumstances. So that was the one big difference. And then between the UK and the US, I actually found it really interesting. Like the people who were coming to the events in the UK or messaging or reaching out were a lot younger. Like they're they're concerned about this question at like 24, 25, 26, including their fertility. And I found like once I got to New York, there were like (laughs) 37-year-olds like – being like, yeah, I'm starting to think about this <laughs> in a way where it didn't, it was, I don't think as urgent. So that was kind of interesting. And I think that for everyone, the career question was a big one. And I think actually for women in the UK, and maybe it's because they're younger and, you know, the boyfriends we had at 24 and not, you know, maybe the people we end up with, I did think that they had more questions around gender roles and stuff and felt really disempowered to have conversations with their partners like there were a few women this is a really small sample size but there were a few women in the UK where I was just like I just want to call your boyfriend like they felt like oh I'm not allowed to have this conversation about whether or not
0: we have kid we have kids because this is a me problem not an us problem which that is fascinating yeah. so did they think that they're boyfriends in their mind just assumed they were going to have kids in five years or just weren't thinking about it at all? Weren't thinking
1: about it at all. So like I guess weren't burdened with the anxiety around fertility. Oh,
0: and they want to be cool. And they want to be cool. And and
1: like I find that really frustrating that people feel the need to minimise a very genuine and real question with a genuine and real timeline to be a chill girl.
0: Oh, and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I Mm. was actually chatting to a friend of mine who's in her 30s and single in – England at the moment about some of the dates that she's been on lately. And she said something really funny to me where she said, the guys wig out on me without ever listening to me. Like as soon as we go on a date, she's in a, she's almost in her mid thirties. As soon as we go on a date, they're ba- basically treating her like she's just shopping for sperm mm-hmm. to get a mm-hmm. dad. Mm. She doesn't even want kids, but mm. they will not listen to mm. her and they will not believe her that she's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not freaking out about this. Like I'm mm-hmm. quite at peace with not having children mm. and She is genuinely, in inverted commas, for want of a better phrase, chill about it, Mm -hmm. and they just straight up won't believe her.
1: So um, what's a chick supposed to do? And the funniest thing is, it's actually a lot easier to get sperm than it is to get an egg donor. (laughs) Sperm's not
0: that hard to come by (laughs) if you really want it. (laughs) True. Um, Yeah, it's a shame. And so, and also, why do you think that the women in um, England were thinking about it between 24 to 26? I don't think it would have even occurred to me, really, at that age. I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, I
1: honestly have no idea why they were engaging with the question earlier, but there are a lot of like genuinely quite anxious girlies around. I don't know why.
0: And I guess that's who you're – well, no, your book's not exactly marketed to anxious girlies, but I can understand why anxious Mm. girls Mm. pick it up. It's people who are thinking deeply about the question, Mm. which brings me to, speaking of people who aren't anxious (laughs) – You didn't think that I would like this book. (laughs) No, I didn't. Well, I'm always nervous about
1: mums reading it, which I'm less nervous now because there's a lot of parents who really liked it. But I'm anxious about mums reading it because I feel like it's one of those things that invites people to be quite defensive about like, well, you don't know, you haven't been through this, so X, Y, Z. But also you are someone who, you're not an anxious person and I think that, And you also make – you know yourself quite well and you make decisions quite quickly. Like I think that it's – I didn't think you'd resonate with the dithering.
0: (laughs) Well, no, I didn't think – well, but I didn't really think of it as dithering. I was surprised by how much I loved the book. when I I knew that your writing was good and when I picked it up I was semi-interested. But what surprised me was how it made me think about mothering differently. Mm. And I'd already made the decision. I'd already had my two kids by the time I was reading it. And it really um, clarified some thinking around being a mother and how it's treated by society and in culture in different ways that I hadn't really thought that deeply about. And really part the parts of it that resonated with me was how deep it went into like care as work mm. and mothering as work. And, yeah, I just loved it. I've recommended it to so many people whether I think even people who decided they don't want kids would get so mm. much out of it because it's really – such so a look at like society as a whole mm. and where we are now. And if you're looking at women, then you, I guess you can look at a wide range of issues which you've done. Like it looks at reproductive rights, it looks at climate change, it looks at racism, it looks at immigration mm. and dumb luck as well. Yes. <laughs> and privilege for some people. So, yeah, you. but you were surprised that I liked it. Yeah, I was. <laughs> but there were some funny reactions to it and I didn't realise this, this was such a common reaction until – you raised it with me. There's a woman I know, very intelligent, very thoughtful, empathetic 50-year-old woman who was so dismissive about this book when mm. I mentioned it to her in passing. I think I – because she's such a wide reader. I said, oh, have you read this book? And she's like, no. Mm. She's like, "I'm um, why, why, why would I read that? And I was quite taken aback because she's not usually like that, so I just dropped it and n- never pushed it further with her. And then you brought up to me independently. You're like, oh, I've, I've had some actually um, – strange reactions from older women Mm. to this. So what are those reactions?
1: I think they find it a bit confronting. Well, firstly, I think that they think that the idea of it being a question in itself is stupid. So I think that we've been socialised to believe that, you know, that the answer comes before the question. You just know. I just know I want to have kids. You just know it's something that you feel inherently It comes before the question. So I think the premise of it is offensive to them that it's even a question, and they think it's this kind of like neurotic, navel gazing millennial stuff. So I think that is challenging. And I think that also there is an element, and I don't want to be patronizing about it, but I do think there is an element of some of these women not having had the choice or having had less choice about parenthood as the default and not that they might've never had kids. They might've had kids, but they might've had it with a different person or at a different time or had fewer kids or I don't know. I think that they're, it's kind of like that resentment. It's like, you know, when you were when a cadet in a newsroom, we both had this experience and there's like a generation of older people that like want you to suffer in the ways they yes. did and they don't want to help you with anything because they're like, well, back in my day, like uh, we used our blood as ink or whatever. Oh, and
0: going to traumatic car crashes yeah, well, we did it. Yes. And also a small degree of... Put up with the sexism, not as bad anymore. But totally. when we were starting up, it's like, you yeah. think this sexism is bad? You should have seen what it was like 15 years ago. Totally. Me. Yeah. And the,
1: that's a good example because the sexual harassment in your room is crazy. And they're like, well, you're not literally being assaulted. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I think there's a little bit of an element of kind of you're sulking about something and we went through worse but I think,
0: like one woman, who and they like, did have it harder in a lot of ways. Of that is the truth yeah. too. And, but also, the book talks about that. Exactly. Um, yeah. If they read it, they'd love it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Older women who've been really candid, and the word that was used repeatedly was confronting. That I found it very confronting is that it. So many of them said, "I just didn't think. We didn't think. We never thought. We didn't think about this decision. Like it wasn't a decision you thought about, or had the luxury of thought of thinking about, or were permitted to think about." So I think that they found it confronting in that way, where it
0: they were sort of re-examining their own choices and rethinking them. I think there is an element of, it didn't even occur to me. Like they, mm. it, it was back where, I guess we're talking about the early eighties maybe. Mm. Um. Or yeah, the eighties, it was back when they thought like there was choice. Like you were told there was choice, but mm. everybody around you is you're all still yes. doing the same thing. Totally. And still putting up with a lot of um different things. Although when I read your book, I did think, wow, I didn't really think about this at all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's just more to do with my general disposition. (laughs) That's a Friday problem. (laughs) Yeah. That's a specific Friday problem, not thinking things through. It'll be fine. (laughs) Well, it was fine. It was fine for you, so yeah. In this book, there's a lot of, you know, thinking about climate change is the really obvious one, class, Mm -hmm. wealth, like if you're rich enough to have a kid, what kind of world is your kid going to grow up in? Though I think you know, worthy big picture things to grapple with. It's not so much addressed in your book, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it, about smaller personal things that women grapple with that they might not be able to articulate properly, which is along the lines of I don't want to be a mum because Mm. that could be Mm. quite lame. Like I'm too cool or like I can't, not that I'm too cool to be a mum, but... I don't want my identity to change Mm -hmm. so much and not be my own person anymore. And, you know, this deep, deep rooted, internalized misogyny that mums aren't cool.
1: Yeah, totally. uh, Because I see that play out with a few people. Absolutely. And I think that there's a few, so I think one thing is that we were raised, and Brady was, and I always say we're the same age, which we are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We were raised on, Like, Mike, I got got my first job the year that Lean In came out. Like, we were raised on a type of feminism that really fetishized, idealised, romanticised emancipation through paid employment. Like, create profit, not progeny. And, like, if you're a real feminist, like, you will find your calling and your um, freedom in the workplace, like, through the office, um, not through the home. And I think that that kind of feminism was so disparaging about motherhood. And, you know, the horrific side effect of that is that, it didn't prioritise anything to do with mums, whether that's social safety nets or all of the other policies. Childcare. Childcare, parental leave, all of that stuff was absolutely, I think in many ways, deprioritized for a kind of feminism that was just like, you know, be a girl boss and get bread or whatever. So I think that part of it is that the feminism we were raised on and the way that it degraded motherhood, but also just culturally always mothers have been de. Politicized in a way, like seen, sort of seen as, you know, anything in the dis- domestic sphere is taken less seriously. And I think that a lot of women our age who are really politically engaged and you know really clever and they, they don't there's an anxiety about I don't want to be yet yeah, quote unquote just a mum, which is crazy because so many people I know who become mothers become so much more radicalized in different ways for. Poli- Particularly politically, once they've had kids, <laughs> because you fucking realize all
0: the policies that don't socialize the cost of reproduction. So it's so funny you say that because I, I I think I've joked multiple times on this podcast about how maternity leave radicalized yeah. me. And now I I am ambitious, obviously, yeah. and yeah. do like my job and working and want to achieve. But in my first maternity leave, it was radicalized polit- politically in a way because I realized what a a shit thing that we were being sold to put mm. work at the centre of our lives. Mm-hmm.
1: Totally. And I think the funny thing is like going back way further, I guess, to the beginning of all of this is I think that I don't think as a society we have properly shed the kind of maternal archetype of like the absolutely selfless, needless, without temper, serene endlessly giving mother. And I it's so interesting seeing like people I know become mothers as well who, you know, can be absolutely staunch feminists in XYZ and like go into motherhood being like, I'm gonna reinvent it. And are still plagued with this like guilt and this constant feeling of not
0: being meeting that archetype. Totally. I absolutely agree. And then and I am pretty free of that archetype. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you know, socialise lots and ha- have lots of things I'm interested in outside of my kids. And some of the comments that I still get mm. are quite – like there are jokes from some people about Matt being a single dad.
1: And, re- like, and it's insane. Oh, insane. Like like someone who, who does pick- 50% yeah, is seen p- as
0: – Who picks the kids up every yeah. day? Who makes yeah. their dinner five nights a week? Who does the baths and bedtimes because Matt works evenings? But, one, I'm not going to post all that stuff because it's boring so mm. you don't really see it. But I, mm. if a man was doing what I'm doing, mm-hmm. they would be seen as like the most extraordinary father. Totally. But because I'm doing 50, yeah. you get minimised. And also, aside from that, you know, I, this, I certainly have the guilt at times mm-hmm. as well. And yeah. it's amazing how primal it can be. Yeah. And I guess not primal, but I guess it's just the culture that
1: you we've been marinating
0: in, in and, and not realising. So I can understand why. It gets to women who don't want to party as much as I do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people who are less cool than me, yeah, it gets to them.
0: (laughs) So you've written the book now, what, two, three years ago maybe? Started writing it about three years ago, yeah. You've had to revisit it Mm. in between editions because the American and English edition would be different to the Australian edition. Because, God forbid, you put an Australian word in a book that's (laughs) going to be read by English people. They flip out. (laughs) I've taken the word Toomba out of it. It's funny how much, because I had a book edited for England, and it was funny the innocuous things oh that they take out that you're like, come on, a reader can is going to know what that means from context. Mm. No one is ever thinking that about an Australian audience. No. We just get our books with mum spelt like M O M. No one cares. Totally.
1: So much of it, I was like, this is outrageous. I can't believe we're changing all of this. And then there was one line where I talked about my mum almost T boning a pea plater. <laughs> And the editors were like, We are so sorry. We have no idea what any of this means.
0: (laughs) Okay, some of that I can understand. (laughs) But so you've had to revisit it, I think, a bit more Mm -hmm. than most authors have to revisit their books. Mm. Is there anything in there that you've changed your mind on?
1: Yes. So, like a bit, so just for reference, like about 40% of the book changed between editions, partly to introduce new case studies in the US and UK, but partly also because Roe v. Wade was overturned in between editions. And that was obviously extremely relevant to the reproductive rights uh, chapter. The thing that I felt, so it's interesting that the chapter that I felt most anxious about and most uncomfortable writing is the one that I still have thought about. I didn't, that I didn't quite, maybe quite get it right. So when I started writing the book and thinking about the book and having conversations with friends about You know what? What they would want from a book like this, or the anxieties and hopes and fears that were on their mind when they were thinking about whether or not they wanted to become a parent, is that something started happening where, um, and I'm not taking the piss, but people were basically talking about mothering millennial men and the fact that, well, why would I have a kid? I'm dating dating one basically, and. I know this is totally unrelatable to you, Bridie. Um, So, (laughs) and that was just came up again and again in conversations, like being like, I already do. And and I think, you know, there there are books to be written and many have been written about the asymmetry in literal domestic labour, like housework and child rearing, all of that. What I think was on a lot of women's mind was the division, the asymmetry and the division of what we can call emotional labour, which isn't... The right term, really, but it's the shorthand we have for it. All the mental load around starting and finishing hard conversations, you know, emotional caretaking in relationships, particularly heterosexual relationships. And so I knew, like, there were people saying to me that should just be the whole book. The whole book should just be about mothering millennial men. It's the only thing impacting my decision. Don't write any other chapters. Don't care about climate change. Can you just make the whole book this? So I, I was like very interested in this idea, and I wanted to go to psychologists, and I wanted to you know, interview people about why we – how did we get here? Like why do we socialise little boys like this and little girls like this and why, how do we get to a point where you have one partner who is so emotionally literate, expressive and one partner who isn't? And I think I regret the way – because I think I was just surrounded by – and have my own resentment as well with partners – about I think it was too much of an angry chapter maybe and not enough I didn't spend enough time thinking about what the actual solution was like I think the solution isn't as we've told men for so long like go to therapy I went to therapy so you have to go to therapy like I think I wish I'd pushed a little bit harder against this idea of like just privatizing the problem and bringing a professional in in, and being like I had to do all this work by myself and make myself like a perfect partner and I'm a perfect product and now that you have to go and make yourself a perfect product. And this really transactional, you know, a tra- I guess a tra- quite transactional approach to it, I think I, I wish I'd spent a little bit longer thinking about like what is the solution to I reference in the book about heteropessimism, like the fact that everyone's just like that straight couples are like the butt of all jokes because of how <laughs> fraught the relationship. are. I would love are. to read that. Yeah, and I, I, th- I just, yeah, I would like to write something not a mea culpa, but just something that kind of goes a little bit deeper than I went, I think, because I wanted to capture the resentment and that took a lot of words to do so. And also interviewing people about why men are the way they are. It was interesting. I have, he's actually a mutual friend of ours, right? But someone I know listened to the audiobook and found himself getting in a fight with the narrator. Um, It wasn't me. I uh, was not cast because I was too bad at reading the book, but there was a voice actor who read the book and he found himself getting in a fight with her on that chapter because he was like of course I'm like this like this is how I was socialized like I was penalized for expressing my emotions and rewarded when I didn't you know like this is why we are the way that I we are and so yeah not to be like not all
0: men or it's not their fault but I think I wish I'd gone a bit broader or deeper on that I would love to read especially about heteropesticism there's my mispronunciation <laughs> there of the I podcast I was wondering what's <laughs> gonna happen with a guest <laughs> Especially on that, I would love to read more about that, particularly since I could bring the point of view to you about what about credit to the boys?
1: Bridie? <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing Bridie loves, it's to give credit to the boys.
0: <laughs> I just love men. I just, I think, accidentally know the most useful men. Yeah, you know the Australia. three
1: best men in Australia and that's your sample My size. dad, my brother,
0: my husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I would... Genuinely, like I'm, I'm obviously joking there. I would love to go deeper on that and mm. what the broader solutions are because it's something that I was very blind to mm. for a very long time because of my own personal circumstances, you know, how I was raised, my ultra, ultra involved loving father and, you know, so close my entire life to my brother who's almost the same age as me. And then meeting Maddie, so I was like very disconnected from this for a yeah. long time until probably my mid twenties, and then looked around at who my heterosexual girlfriends were dating and thought, hmm, they do not seem up to standard. <laughs>
1: yeah, the bar is low. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's something I'd like to go. But interesting deeper
0: to go deep on. on it because I think there's so many men who do want to do better and try, and also mm. I guess another flip side to this which is very in line with credit to the boys. Like, millennial fathers are doing more than mm. any father has done, any mm. generation of dads have done previously. Mm. Like, And they we- need
1: to be, like, not to be boring, but they need also need to be supported by policies to do that. Like we do need parental leave that supports any, totally. any primary carer. Like, and it's not a complete, like I don't want to walk back everything I said in that chapter because I do think that there are millions of women who are taking on a burden that they shouldn't have to as sort of mother-therapist-girlfriend hybrid, and I really hope that changes. But to be fair, when you, if you talk to, like, Gen Z.
0: When I love would, to talk to Gen yeah, Z. <laughs>
1: when they're da- dating, like, I I am kind of thinking, oh, I guess you're just not accepting this, so maybe that's how it changes <laughs> in the way
0: that. I think that's a secret to my life. Like, my expectations were so in a bar that yeah. if a partner had done less than, I would have been like, what the hell is this? Yeah, This isn't how a house is run. Yeah. Where's my dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Just for reference, when anyone in our group
1: chat co- cooks something nice, <laughs> we'll put the recipe in for us to cook it, and Friday gives it to her partner. <laughs> and, he <cooks laughs> and he cooks it. And he cooks it for her. <laughs>
0: and he does a really good job. I get- full credit to Maddie. Full credit I to the boys. I always give full credit to him. I, don't, I think that the chapter, the emotional labor chapter, was really well done. I don't, yeah, I obviously don't think you need a Mia culpa. It's almost like it's a, another chapter. Like yeah. it's the chapter after that. Yeah. The, there's the emotional. Labor chapter and then there's the next chapter Mm. after that you need the same amount of words to tackle it. And I guess get some of the male perspectives on it as well. Yeah. And my last question, Gina. Oh
1: no. Is it gonna be intrusive?
0: You love to ask intrusive inappropriate questions. I never think they're inappropriate. Oh no. (laughs) I only know when people react after. Do you think you're gonna have a freaking baby? Oh my why would you ask that?
1: actually ask that you'll have to read the book and find out
0: (laughs) great answer available at all good bookstores near you dear listener thank you so much for joining me today Gina we've talked about your book previously on the podcast but I'm sure that went a lot deeper for anyone interested in parenting who's ever thought about parenting or who has parented themselves I think that so many different people would love this book thanks for coming in and joining me this week thanks for having me You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridey, except this week it was with Brady and Gina. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a rating and leave a review. We love reading them. And you can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.